Looking for a graduation gift to inform, inspire, and encourage? When you give a subscription to Christianity Today, you're giving redemptive, relevant news and thoughtful balanced dialogue about the church, current issues, and public theology. Visit orderct.com slash graduate gifts to get a discounted student subscription for the graduates in your life. Starting at only $2 per month, this gift will engage and grow their faith throughout the year. Click the link in the show notes or visit orderct.com slash graduate gifts to order now. There's a story playing out right now in Syria because the war in Syria has destroyed a generation of men. And there are women who never used to go outside of their homes without their husbands. The husbands would even do the grocery shopping and, you know, sometimes they just would be at home. Now there's no husband and their children are hungry. And, you know, they have to figure out how they're going to get a job to support their children because there are no men and they're at risk. There's nobody to protect them. They've got to protect themselves and their families. And the widows in India, and I use this when I teach the Book of Ruth, they used to burn them when their husbands died. And the widows, that their families, if they throw them out, they're beggars for the rest of their lives. And they say, this is not life. We all died the day our husbands died. This is Where You From, a podcast for those who believe it's important to stop and listen before we speak. Join us as we ask another Christian thought leader where you're from and discover how their life experiences and expertise, even if we may disagree with something they say, offer us an important perspective that's worth thinking about. Welcome to Where You're From. I'm Rasul Berry. What forms of injustice bother you? What are you passionate about? Some say if you really want to figure out what to do with your life, identify what angers you the most in the world and go fix it. Oftentimes, the things we are most passionate about are the very things God is calling us to make a difference in. Carolyn Custis James is passionate about advocating for the dignity and significance of women all over the world through confronting injustices that affect and hurt women. She is a brilliant and passionate cancer survivor who has dedicated her life and energy to helping women embrace their God-given identity and purpose in a postmodern society. Her books have rocked my world in a good way and have helped me understand not only the value and importance of women, but also the role of men as advocates and fellow image bearers. Today, we will hear more about that through her explanation of what she calls the Blessed Alliance. But first, let's get into Carolyn's 10-year struggle with singleness, even though she grew up being told that her purpose was to get married and have kids. While being single, Carolyn found herself in the first class of women at a seminary where her dad was on the board. Here's Carolyn Custis James on Where You're From. It was a seminary that decided they were going to open the doors for women. And it was where my father had gone and my brother. And so it was an approved <laughs> seminary. And, um, and so I just went because they opened the doors. And they say the first class of female 
students in a seminary have this mindset that, you know, we're just glad to be here and we're not going to cause any trouble. Um, and we don't have any big ideas. We just, we want to hear what's being taught here. So I sort of, you know, coasted along with that, you know, and, um, hold on. I'm sorry. I, I hate to interrupt, but <laughs> you kind of, there's a key part of this story that just, I want to double click on cause it sounds fascinating. Your father mm. was on the board mm. of a seminary that didn't allow women in it right to a time and then changed that policy. Like I don't, I'm not, I didn't even know for sure. Like that, that was a thing that women could not go to seminaries. Was this, Oh yeah. How I mean, how widespread was that? Well, let me tell you how we went because this has happened in the church when my mom was very young. Is that they realized they were sending women missionaries out and they weren't training them. Mm. And there's a whole story about that that I read. It was suffocating to read, you know, because they lived in a very in a separate house, but they could go to classes at seminary. But they couldn't participate in the class. They couldn't ask questions or talk. And they were highly supervised and chaperoned. So when I went to seminary, we couldn't go during the school year. We had to go in the summers because they didn't want us to take the place of a male student. And it was a different degree program than the one they were offering to men who were going to become pastors. And you're saying when you first started, you actually had to go to class in the summer. Right. How did that feel? You know, I think the door opened a little and we went, you Got know, it. it was different. And, and we sort of accepted the rules mm-hmm. of, you know, the place of women. Right. So what was your seminary experience? like? I loved it. And mm-hmm. there were men in our classes because there were men who had not been able to go to seminary, but they were pastoring churches or they were teaching in Christian schools and they treated us like their sisters. Mm-hmm. And it was a good experience from that standpoint. And we just ate it up, you okay. know, the education we were getting. And was your dad supportive of this move to for this seminary that he was yeah, I think it was um, ultimately a conflict for him. You know, he was supportive of me going. I think he was relieved that I had something that I felt strongly about and, mm-hmm. and went to do. And I never went back home after that. So you fortify what was already a solid Christian education experience and background. Now it's even more so through an experience that most people didn't have of this, you know, seminary degree. So then what's the next step? I ended up living in Texas and I went on staff at a church that had the same views of women that you weren't going to be a pastor, you weren't going to be, you know, but I could work with the girls. And Mm -hmm. I think for me, what started to really bother me was just seeing some of the light material that was being marketed to women. Mm and going to women's events and feeling like we don't need a softer teaching. We need really strong teaching Mm. because we're running into things in our lives and we're experiencing deep struggles and uh, hard questions and we need 
deep teaching. And I would go to a, a women's retreat or a women's event, and I would be horrified by, you know, the nonsense and the patronizing and, you know, you're beautiful and, you know, that kind of stuff. You know, when I'm thinking, these women have been abused, these women are facing health problems, they have had enormous heartache, they're into financial troubles, life is coming at us just as hard as it's coming to anybody else, and we're not equipping Mm. them. Mm. I ended up convicted that the questions that were being asked about women in leadership and women in ministry were not big enough. Because when we have conversations in the church about women in leadership, we're talking about women who would be on staff or would be a pastor, but we're not talking about the rest of women. Mm. You know, and that's what I ran into, okay? I'm not going to go to become a pastor. That was never my calling, but I'm not a wife and a mother, so the church isn't talking to me. Mm. It is not talking. Now, it'll talk to me in a general sense, but not as a woman. Because it's like, in this world, okay. what is even, what so, do you do with all that? So the next, the next thing was running into Frank James. I don't know anybody like him. He was a champion for me. And he spoke into my life in ways nobody had ever done. And when we were first married, one of the things, you know, I grew up with, you know, you work for the first few years while your husband finishes his education. Well, my husband ended up getting two PhDs, so it was sort of a long ride. But he said to me when we first got married, you need to find out what your gifts are and what God wants you to do with your life. And I'm not the answer to that question. And, you know, he just pushed me. And every time an opportunity would come, because I wasn't in ministry, we moved to Philadelphia at the time, and I got a job at a, a local hospital. And his response to all of that was, you do what you gotta do. You know, and it was sort of like, we're gonna do life together. And whatever it takes from both of us to do whatever comes, We're going to do that. So I went on a real detour because I was an administrative assistant to one of the vice presidents of this hospital, and it was boring to me. And I just thought, okay, when I went back to work after that conversation, I said, you know, I'm not working because I have to. I'm working because I'm called to do this. And I started looking for opportunities to do something more. And it ended up, and it's a long story, but it got me into computers and into ultimately into software development. And I worked with the designers of this particular software. And that's when I started having ministry opportunities. And just a lot of things had been simmering over those years with me. My theology was evolving. I was asking different questions, you know, about what it means to be a woman. My husband gets a job at a theological seminary. They asked me to speak to the women because I'm a faculty wife. And I talked about why women need 
deep theology. And not that we need to be academics or, you know, live in our heads, but that we need to know God for ourselves. And um, I told the story of a friend of mine who, we were in high school together, she's a Christian, and she got married shortly after we graduated from high school and entered this long stretch of a battle with infertility. And I would come home on breaks from college and visit her. We'd sit in her apartment, living room, and she would weep, you know, in despair that she would ever be able to have a child. And several years later, she did have a baby. And when her baby was a year old, she and her husband went on a picnic with another couple in Oregon along the banks of the Sandy River. And it was just a perfect day, and they were having a wonderful time, and the two men took the baby and went out in the water, and she and her friend were standing there watching as they played in the water. And her husband was holding the baby, and he stepped in a hole in the riverbank and lost his footing. And to spare the baby from a sudden cold dunking, he pushed their little guy toward his friend and his friend didn't see this coming and her baby was swept away in the river. It took 24 hours for them to recover her baby's body. Mm. And, you know, what I said to the women that day was the moment the word why crosses your lips, you are doing theology. Mm. And if you've been trying to survive on fluff, you don't have anything that's going to hold you. And, you know, in my own circumstances, you know, hitting that 10-year stretch of singleness, when I look back, I think that's where my ministry has come out of because I asked why. Why is God moving everybody else forward and nothing's happening here and I don't have any direction for my life? And, you know, and you do, you hit things in your life when you ask that why question. They can throw all the platitudes they want at you, but none of that is going to hold you up. So that's what my first book was about, was the importance of theology for women. And, you know, my ministry sort of came out of that. And, um, but it led to bigger questions, you know, because I'm thinking, okay, Are just some women created to be theologians or did God create all of us to be theologians? And that drove me back to Genesis 1 and 2. And and what did you find? Well, that's what the Imago Dei means. Hmm. If you are created to image God, it means that your first calling is to know the God who created you to be like himself. That he is to be our study. (laughs) You know, the Bible is the revelation of God to us. And so we study him in the lives of the people in scripture and how he is making himself known to us in so many ways through his word, through Jesus, through all creation. We learn about the God who created us to reflect him. You know, so I can't reflect somebody I don't know. Mm. And the questions matter. Mm. The questions are really important. None of us have perfect theology. One of the things that um, 
moved me in reading some of what you wrote. You talk about these experiences you've had with women that you were just meeting in various contexts from all over the world who it seemed like the questions that they were asking or the circumstances they were dealing with kind of blew away categories of these kind of neat superficial visions for women that you yeah. had heard growing up. Well, I think what ha- what was good for me was to get strung out for 10 years because I started looking at other women's stories and I'm thinking, oh my goodness, she's divorced or she had a baby out of wedlock or she's having to work even though she's married, you know, or she wants to work, you know, and you look and you think about your grandmother and you, is, is, is it over for her or is, does God have purpose for her? And what about little girls that never grow to be adults? You know, was there never a purpose for them? You know, so I started, I went back to scripture. I went back to Genesis one and two. That's the only pre-fall text that we have to ask what is God's vision for his daughters there. And I wanted to ask for all women and girls everywhere in the world, in every era of time, no matter who they are or what their circumstances are or what their demographics are, or what they see when they look in the rearview mirror. And I want to know if God's purposes for us are indestructible. Mm. That you could tell a trafficked woman, you are God's image bearer. And that has never changed. And that heightens in infinite ways the atrocities that are being committed against you. I want to talk to every woman and girl, because I think the Bible does. It is not a badge of honor at the end of the game to be wearing a clean uniform. Mm. And I don't want to stand in front of Jesus and be explaining why I did too little. Yeah. I'd rather explain why I did too much. <laughs> and I want little girls to know that they are God's image bearers. But it has really ignited women feeling and knowing that their stories matter. Wow. And it's been a journey for me, and I'm still learning, and there are still places where I'm thinking, wow, did I ever get that wrong? (laughs) You know, the story that lit a fire under me was a shocker, was the Book of Ruth. And uh, because I'm married to a seminary professor, I can sit in on classes and um, Bruce Walkey. I mean, I always said, if he opens his mouth, I want to be in the room because <laughs> he's just an amazing Old Testament professor. And he had been researching recent scholarship. And there's a whole new take on the book of Ruth, which you typically hear it preached as a beautiful love story between Ruth and Boaz. But they're now saying that the book of Ruth is the story of a female Job. It's Naomi's story and that she loses everything in the first five verses of that book. And then what he said was that Ruth is initiating the action in the story. She is leading, you know, making initiatives with Boaz that are going to change things for Naomi and restore her faith in God's love. 
But when he used the word initiate, as a woman growing up in the church, that was a word that was not to be in my vocabulary. And Ruth, she's an undocumented immigrant. She's a, we'd call her an Arab today. She's a brand new convert to the faith. No one is less qualified to be a leader, and she's the leader in the book mm. of Ruth. And I was devastated. I told Frank when I got home, I never knew God expected so much of me. And God is moving his purposes forward for the whole world through what she's doing. So the thing that it kind of begs the question for me is how did we get this so wrong? Yeah, one of the Old Testament scholars that I've read, Robert Alter, who's um, Jewish, um, but he's one of the best Hebrew scholars in today's world. And he, and he said when we read the biblical text for him, that's the Old Testament, we need to foreignize it. Because we are foreigners to the world of the Bible. Hmm. And the stories in the Bible are drained of their potency when we just look at them through American eyes. That's why we've turned the book of Ruth into a love story. You know, because we don't understand the destitution of childless widows in patriarchal cultures. There's a story playing out right now in Syria because the war in Syria has destroyed a generation of men. And there are women who never used to go outside of their homes without their husbands. The husbands would even do the grocery shopping and, you know, sometimes they just would be at home. Now there's no husband and their children are hungry. And, you know, they have to figure out how they're going to get a job to support their children because there are no men and they're at risk. There's nobody to protect them. They've got to protect themselves and their families. And the widows in India, and I use this when I teach the book of Ruth, they used to burn them when their husbands died. And the widows that their families, if they throw them out, they're beggars for the rest of their lives. And they say, this is not life. We all died the day our husbands died. And, you know, so when you read the story of Naomi, instead of kicking her around and criticizing her, you have to realize how much danger she is in and how the problems for her have escalated. And for Ruth, when she goes out to glean, Boaz tells her, stay in my field because I've told the men not to touch you. Why did he have to tell them that? And Naomi tells her, go back to that field to glean because in someone else's field, you could be hurt. You know, that's where rapes happen. We don't factor any of that in. The best sermon I ever heard on the book of Ruth was preached by a woman from Nigeria. But she understands that because her culture is like that, you know, where if you're a widow, you're you're at risk. Mm. You're in danger. When we come back, Carolyn will describe how the Blessed Alliance helps us think through movements like the Me Too movement while also creating a space for equality between genders. 
That's coming up after the break. I'm Rasul Berry, and you're listening to Where You're From. If you're enjoying Where You're From, would you take a moment to write a quick review and give us some stars? Podcast platforms like iTunes and Google promote highly rated shows. So a one-sentence review of what this episode or show means to you and a quick five-star rating will help these important stories reach more people. Thank you for your help and keep listening for more of Where You're From. This episode is brought to you by Church Salary. Coming up with a reasonable salary range for church staff has never been easy. There are so many details to consider before setting compensation for church staff, and you're probably asking yourself questions like, are we paying too little or too much? What benefits do we offer employees? What's a reasonable housing allowance? Church Salary believes that offering competitive and fair compensation helps keep people in ministry. Using the expansive, church-specific compensation database and powerful salary calculator tool, you can also make better compensation decisions so your staff can focus on their ministries. Start with Church Salary's annual membership today to run unlimited customized reports and get access to our member-only content. Ready to start making better compensation decisions? Get started at churchsalary.com. This is Mary Jo Clark, and I'm one of the producers for Where You From. And before we return to our conversation with Carolyn Custis James, I wanted to share a teaser from our next episode with Dr. Soong Chan Ra. This is Where You From. I think we jump too quickly to praise, and we don't stay in the lament long enough. So I tell this story about my mom where this was about 20 years ago. She was in her 60s, and she showed me the condition of her knees. And each of us have like one kneecap on each knee. She had five. Mm. And the reason she had five kneecaps on each knee is that she had been in prayer, lament prayers, and especially interceding for her children and her grandchildren. She prayed on her knees every day, at least an hour or two a day, uh, praying for her church, her family, her children, her grandchildren. And when you're doing that for decades, your knees actually can't take that kind of pressure. And so her knees cracked open. And her knees now conformed to the shape of the floor so that she can kneel before God every day. And that kind of lament is what we're missing in the church. This is Where You're From. I'm Rasul Berry. And in just a moment, we will hit play on part two of my conversation with Carolyn Custis James. But first, just a quick note that if you think you've missed anything in today's show, the show notes are available in the podcast description or on our website at whereyou'refrom.org. The show notes contain today's talking points, links to connect with us on our socials, including Insta, Twitter, and Facebook, as well as a link to a free download titled Marching Forward. This free download features stories of faith rooted in historically black colleges and universities. So click on the link in the podcast description or on our website at whereyou'refrom.org. That's where, Y-A, from.org. Before the break, Carolyn shared her personal story that led into her understanding of the Blessed Alliance, where God has created men and women to be in partnership for his mission, and how this helps us think through movements like the Me Too movement, while also creating a space for equality between genders. You're listening to Where You're From. So I went back to 
Genesis 1 and 2, whatever conclusions I draw, we can't leave any woman or girl out. So that it has to be universal, not just Western America. It has to be something I can tell a woman in any part of the world and any, any point in history. I don't want to make jokes. When we, when we talk about the creation of male and female, we make jokes about the man. You know, like he needs somebody to take care of him or cook his meals. And we make jokes about the woman, you know, sort of, she's going to be his helper. And we confine it to marriage. Instead of saying, no, this is a creation of male and female. So this is a creation of humanity. If you're a human being, you're in this conversation. And I wanted to take seriously the statements that God is making. So I looked at the language. I looked at what does it mean to be God's image bearer. It's more than a plant and an animal. It means that you have you have responsibility. You're created to rule. You know, our first calling is to care for creation. And that is one that we share and that, that God created male and female. And when, when he creates his image bearers as male and female, again, I'll say it means our first calling is to know him. And to find out, you know, what he loves and to look at the world through his eyes and to love what he loves and to join his mission in the world. And we are all called to this, whether you're a little girl or an elderly woman or you're, you know, somehow you have a disability that you can't, you know, your body's not fully functioning, you're still called to this. It's our first calling and it's the highest possible identity that could ever be conferred on any being that God creates to be like God himself. That's good. And then I read that when he creates his male and female image bearers and he commissions them to be fruitful and multiply, it's more than procreation. It's living fruitful lives, productive lives, exploring and cultivating and stewarding the earth's resource. It involves everything human beings do. And he brings male and female together and blesses them. I call it the blessed alliance because I see it as a, it's a kingdom strategy for his sons and daughters to serve him together. And when you read Genesis 2, when he zeroes in on the creation of, of male and female, he looks at the man and he says, it's not good for the man to be alone. He's not making fun of the man. You know, the man, there's nothing wrong with the man. The man is created at the climax of God's creative activity. This is the pinnacle. He's a masterpiece. But he's teaching us about our relationships. And it's not just marriage. It only talks about marriage at the very end of that chapter. It's about male and female. And he's teaching us that we need each other. And the language that he uses for the female are two Hebrew words. It's azer connecto. Connecto means she's his match. Like the South Pole is to the North Pole, okay? She's on equal ground with him. She's made out of him, you know, chunk of his side, you know. That, so when he sees her, he sees himself. But the word azer is a word that is used mostly in the Old Testament for God as the helper of his people. 
It's used 21 times as a noun, and 16 of those times it's used for God. So this is how women are created to image God, by being the azer. And the azer is a military word, and that it always occurs in a military context where God is our shield and defense. And it's used twice for the women. And when I started looking at this military usage, I concluded from that that God created his daughters to be warriors in the battle alongside the men, that we're to bring our full strength, that we are to be fully engaged, that we are to watch our brothers' backs, that we are to be strength for them, that we are to challenge them to be better, and that they will be better because we're with them, um, and that we're to get in the way when they go down the wrong road. That's my Pennsylvania license plate is Acer. <laughs> I want to re- be reminded of that. Frank and I were at a church service where they were having the renewal of wedding vows. And it was a beautiful service and everybody was dressed up and everything. And after the service, I turned to him and I said, I am never going to renew my wedding vows. I said, if I had it to do over again, I would promise a whole lot more. Mm. You know, I would promise to be your best friend, your strongest advocate, your partner in the battles of life. I would promise to get in your way. (laughs) You know, I don't want to be married to arrogance and, you know, somebody who's full of himself. So, yeah, (laughs) I love that. So that's not where I thought you were going when you said... uh, I I wouldn't do the marriage vows again. So is it kind of like your sense that there is a under challenging that's happening of, or there's a lack of vision that's even involved that you can see is modeled in our own marriage ceremony about what this really means? Yeah. I think that the marriage ceremony um, sort of establishes the ground rules Mm. and God didn't create the woman to add responsibility to the man. Mm-hmm. He created help, mm-hmm. real help. And, you know, when we say the man is supposed to protect and provide, and, you know, not every man can do that. And there are a lot of men that are struggling with what the church is telling them is their responsibility as men. Their responsibility as men is to image God. The fruit of the Spirit should be exploding in men's lives and not, I have to be in charge or I have to wear the pants in the family or, you know, we don't want to listen to women in the church because we're the men and we're the ones who are supposed to lead. You know, I think that comes after the fall. Mm. And that's where men begin to assert authority over men, but they also are warring with each other. And you get Cain and Abel, and you get a, a murder. How is your discoveries and your, 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 you think deeply and richly about these things, how has that impacted the way that you 
look at your marriage, the way you look at your friendships or interactions with colleagues who are male. Tell me about how the Blessed Alliance have impacted you. I think we stand on the edges of all of that. I feel like, you know, I always talk about the missing chapter in the Bible where between Genesis 2 and 3, we don't get to see how this works. And we get glimpses of it in Scripture. But I think both of us experience it in other relationships, you know, where we team with some, you and I have done that, you know, where we've teamed on different things where it's better because there's this interaction. And, and he does too, where his work is better and their work is better because there's this interaction and this engagement, this robust kind of discussion of things where you get more perspectives and you listen to people who are different from you. It often typically involves sacrifice. It's about the kingdom of God. So situations where I see it happening are where we get caught up in something bigger and more important than we are. Yeah, and I think that I'd love for you to zoom in on what you mean. You, you've mentioned the importance of questions several times and, and how oftentimes we our questions are too small or we ask the wrong questions. What are the questions we should be asking about men and women and roles and vision and how are those things kind of sidelined or distracted by asking the wrong questions? Yeah, well, we have all these rules that we've made, you know, the men go off and work together and the women go off and work together. And, um, you know, it's an all hands on deck enterprise that we've been called to. And we have blind spots. I mean, we talk about the Me Too crisis. Or you can believe in male headship in the family and lose your job. And you, and she's trained to do something where she can bring home the filet mignon, not just the bacon. You know, then what do you do? So I don't think the way we talk about male and female equips us to engage what life is about or frees us to do that. I mean, I felt for the first years of our marriage that, you know, I was working because he was getting his education. We were trying to launch him. And, you know, he felt like we're not just doing me, we're doing us. We're doing whatever God calls us to do. And if a door opens for me, he's the first one to push me through that door. And it's mission focused. It's kingdom focused. It means that we may make sacrifices and do something that we would rather not do, but it's going to help what needs to be done. We need to be about launching. Gotcha. And so it seems like it's more of a focus of what the challenge is out there, what the need is, what the mission is out there, and not so much about, you know. And what God has entrusted to you, you know, what are the gifts and privileges that you have and power, you know, and how do you use that to empower others and to mobilize others? You know, why do we just talk about people who are ordained? Why aren't we talking about every Sunday morning we are launching a vast group of people out into the workplace, out into all kinds of front lines for the gospel? And it's not just about witnessing, and it's not just about 
you know, your ethics as an employee. <laughs> it's about the very work you do matters. That's what Genesis 1 is saying. Be fruitful, you know. Are you the best at what you do? Are you the best employee? Are you breaking new ground for your company, you know? It's yeah. whatever that work yeah. is, you know, that it honors God. Yeah. Why do you think, because you've mentioned Me Too several times, and in a lot of Christian circles, that feels like almost a bad word or... Like, why do you think there's such a negative reaction from people to a moment in which you would think that there would be an outpouring of sympathy or a sense of outrage about the things that have happened? But instead, it seems there's more of a angst or a frustration toward the idea or this movement of calling out sexual assault. Why do you think that is? Yeah. Especially in the church. It's like. Oh, get over yourselves. Right, you know, yeah. I hear that from women who say, you know, this was 40 years ago. Who cares about right. what happened 40 yeah, years ago? Why is that? Why, why is that the kind of knee-jerk reaction? You know, I think sometimes because some of the ones who are being accused are beloved leaders. And that's a little hard to swallow. Um, I don't think we understand PTSD. And I think a lot of people live with PTSD that we don't understand what's going on with them. Mm. And I just think we don't want, don't rock the boat, you know, don't rock the boat. I think for some people it sounds like a feminist thing, but it's not okay. And, you know, I'm running into the stories all the time. You know, in the class that I taught, there were Me Too stories sitting there. And I also think sometimes when these things happen, women feel like they did something they shouldn't have. Because sometimes what you do when you're being assaulted is you freeze. And you can't explain that. And it's somebody you trusted and somebody you love and somebody you look up to. And suddenly they've crossed the line and you, you don't know what that is. And nobody has talked about it. But we're going to talk about it. That was Carolyn Custis James offering some potential reasons as to why people may be uncomfortable with talking about the Me Too movement, which ties back to how women and men need to work together to form the Blessed Alliance, to bring hope, to break chains of injustice, and to share about God's immeasurable love for all his children. This was Where You're From. I'm Russell Berry. And remember, it's not just about where you're at. It's also about where you're from. This show was produced by Mary Jo Clark, Daniel Ryan Day, and Jade Gustafson, and was engineered by Gabrielle Boward. I also want to give a quick shout out to Dave and Kevin for their help in supporting and promoting Where You're From. Thanks, y'all. Where You're From is part of the Voices Collection from Our Daily Bread Ministries.